This is BMI Redefined with Jin and Mo. Welcome to BMI with Jen and Mo. And today we are so excited to have a guest from Michigan, Cheryl Kennedy. And Mo, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes. So we have State Representative Cheryl, Dr. Cheryl Kennedy. I'd like to put that in there. And she is serving uh, her first term as a rep, uh, representing citizens of Michigan's 48th district. And before joining the legislature, she spent 30 years in the field of public education, working to empower youth and as a local teacher for her first 22 years. And after receiving your PhD in educational leadership and administration in 2011, Dr. Kennedy became a school administrator most recently serving as principal in Wald Lake Consolidated School District since 2013. And now she continues to work in education as a lecturer at the University of Michigan. Cheryl is a sixth generation resident of Michigan's 48th district at her lifelong home. And she and her husband, Mike, have been married for 25 years. Yay, good for you. And you have three adult children and two daughters-in-law. You have David and Megan, Joe and Stephanie, and Carissa. So welcome to BMI (laughs) Redefined. Thank you, thank you. This is so cool and it's so great to see you, Maureen, and nice to meet you, Jenny. Yay. Thanks for having me, and I am in, um, a lot of people in Michigan, as you know, Maureen, um, have up north cabins, which are a little hole in the wall. Some of them are very fancy. Most are, like, one room. Right. (laughs) (laughs) In northern Michigan, surrounded by trees and water, and it's our little place of heaven. So our governor just removed the restrictions to allow us to come up to our up north home and the up north people aren't very happy about it. I know, <laughs> but, right? Um, we stick to ourselves. So yeah, yeah. So we just we need we we were lucky enough to have this place that we can still shelter in place just looking at a lake, which is better. <laughs> That's good. Mm-hmm. Nice and peaceful. And you know, and I have to I have to say, you know, I my family is up north and I do worry about that. That mm-hmm. people coming from down south and you know bringing the virus. But on the other hand, we have to start living life. Yeah. Yeah. Because factories are starting to open now on this coming week at 25% capacity. So the state's been doing, I think, doing a good job of working closely with MIOSHA, with DH, with the um, labor organizations, to create safe environments to educate their workers about how COVID is transmitted, make sure that um, we're doing this as safely as possible. So um, I think the governor did a nice job. She said, it's not like flipping a switch, it's more like turning a dial. So we kind of dial it up and see what happens and then dial it back if we need to. And so far, everything's been going. I mean, we're, we've been doing great as a state. We've been really and And has... Okay, good. And has Detroit and that whole area has that leveled? Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. Okay, our our curve is like flat right now. Good, exactly. 
Good. Okay. And so I have a couple of questions because yeah. I have a couple of friends. I mean, we hear the stories from Michigan or here in Missouri from Michigan. I mean, it's made the news and everything. And I, I will be international news. Well, yeah. Right. International news, international yeah. news. And I will be chastised by one particular friend if I do not ask this question. And he wanted to know why was, why couldn't people buy paint? What's the story behind not being able to buy paint? Well, you could buy paint for a while. And then what was happening, the only places that were, oh, we have these huge box stores like Home Depot and Menards. Right. We and, do too, yeah. And families were going on field trips. Like they weren't buying anything. They just to get out of the house, they'd be like, let's go walk around Menards. And they'd bring the whole family and you got little kids and they're like touching things and spreading the germs. And um, it was recognized when we were doing our contact tracing, as limited as we were, that a lot of these germs were spreading in these big box stores. So right. they, so the governor pulled back for about two weeks and said, okay, if you're not, this is for emergency purposes only. So if your toilet's broken and you need to fix your toilet, you need to be able to get what you need to fix your toilet. But you don't need to paint your living room. So we're going to own, we're going to kind of mark off the areas that aren't essential for health and safety and try to limit, try to limit the traffic and the exposure. And we only did that for like two weeks. Okay. And that's what was necessary to get us to where we are now, because that two weeks, the virus stopped spreading. And then she said, all right, now that we know we're not overwhelming the capacity of our hospitals and things like that. Now you can buy paint again. Now you can come up north to your cabin again. But right. there was about two weeks that she was like, no, just stay home. And the stay two home. weeks seemed like it was like, you know, 10 years or something, you know, to, you yes. know, to some people. And I, I get that. Yeah. Um, and people don't like to be told what, I mean, they yeah. don't understand and they don't like to be told what to do. Nope. You no can't idea. tell me I can't paint. Right. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. And some people might argue, well, painting is good for my mental health to keep me busy while I'm home for two weeks being quarantined. So it is essential. You know, I mean, people can play that's it. Exact, no, that's exactly what it was. Okay. In Michigan, we never plant, never plant vegetables ever until at least Mother's Day, usually Memorial Day, right. because as it was snowing yesterday. Right. right? Who's you just don't plant? do it. Right. You're going to waste your money. Right. Yeah, right. But suddenly everyone in Michigan was planting their vegetables mid-April and that's how they sustain their family. If I don't have tomatoes, my family's, my family doesn't eat. Like everyone. Everyone. Right. Yeah. And we're like, some people maybe, but you're, even those people don't plant in April unless you've got a little starter kit in your, you know, kitchen with seedlings right. or something. Right. So people were, you know, and they didn't know, we didn't have a timeline then. If they, mm -hmm. if, you, if someone asked, how long is this going to last? We're like, we don't know mm -hmm. until we see that curve flat. And so people were projecting, oh my God, it's mm -hmm. going to be August. And I can't mm -hmm. plan my tomatoes. So yeah. just raise a sense of urgency and everyone. Yeah. But yeah. you can, but you can buy tomato plants now. Okay, good. Well, I'm, my yeah. friend will and be I, so I, happy to hear that. And I still wouldn't plant them because it was snowing yesterday. Right. 
biggest concern was that, you know, the health systems were going to be overwhelmed. And we had planned on building many, many more field hospitals, like Hobo Arena, which is a huge um, arena. Um, it was turned into a field hospital, and it, it never got to capacity. And then the field hospitals that were planned, like in Flint and Grand Rapids, they never even built, because once people stayed, started staying home, like, people just stopped getting it for, you know, I mean, we still have a few cases every day, but, um, and then we, we, we went from being third in the country of new cases to like, we're like 15th, 16th now. So we're, we're doing great. Yeah. So that gives the, the governor, the ability to say, okay, we can start opening things up a little bit more now that we've gotten this curve. Right. make people feel a little bit better and to feel like they're living a little bit more. Right, right. right. Uh, because people were, we were seeing increases in domestic violence and depression and right. um, opioid overdoses and sure. things like that. So, you know, it's a really very delicate balance, you know, and like she said, we might have to, her favorite, her favorite word is we have to be nimble. <laughs> we have to pull back if we need to, right. you know, be ready to pull back if we need to, but let's take it kind of baby steps. And so far we've taken a few baby steps forward and have not seen an increase. So we're hoping that people just continue being smart about it, you know, and kind of sticking to themselves, but getting a little bit, we get also getting a few people back to work, um, you know, and and as long as we're doing it in a safe way, we're, we're doing better. So I, am very worried about as being an educator and Jen is it also an educator i'm worried about not just in michigan but also missouri and all around the united states re-entering into the classroom i'm concerned about the students because students this is not a traditional classroom anymore students Uh are up and they're walking and they're on Uh it's not traditional feeding that's right that's right people are on bouncy balls to help with their you know <laughs> if, yeah, I, if they yeah. had those when I was a kid, I'd be on flexible there. seating. Flexible, flexible seating. seating, right? Thank you. Right. Yes. Yep. So, how? I mean, that has to be on the forefront of everyone's minds right now. It's it is it's coming sooner than later. It is, and um, I know a lot of colleges and universities have already just called it and said everything will be, you know, online for a year. Because they're, you know, because close proximity living in dorms and how kids in dorms live, you know. Right. right. Um, <clears throat> but um, I, it's going to be when I talk to our our state superintendent, and I'm sure the same conversations are going on everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's kind of along those same lines as the governor. Um, a lot of people are talking about um, doing like two days you know, alternating two day, three day weeks. Mm -hmm. And so that you only have half of the students at a time. And so creating lessons that are two days in person and then three days online. And then, you know, flipping so that instead of 30 kids in an elementary classroom, you would have 15. Um, The biggest concern, even elementary classrooms are still pretty self-contained. But high schools, you got you know, 3,000, 4,000 kids in some cases roaming, you know, moving from class to class. Um, They've talked about scheduling students as much as possible. So the students stay in one room and the teacher goes to the students instead of the students moving around the building. 
Um, so what the, the really inspiring part of this whole COVID thing is the amount of creative thinking that I've seen um, really brilliant people saying, okay, this is our reality. So how can we make it work and limit the exposure? Because we'll never get rid of the exposure, but how can we limit the exposure? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we make sure that, you know, I think antibody, antibody testing has taken off in Michigan. People don't know if, it, if you have the antibodies, if it means you're immune, but everybody's getting those antibody tests. And then we'll find out, you know, the more people that have them that don't get the virus, it tells us a lot. Um, so hopefully we'll have better information about antibody testing too. And it may be that some kids who have the antibodies come to school and kids that don't stay home. I mean, there's just a lot of, there's kind of plan A, plan B, plan C right now. But you're right. I don't see us like September 1st coming and having 30 kids in a classroom Mm -mm. and if we did if we did then we would be shut down in two weeks like like if we go back to school as normal i can guarantee you within a month Mm -hmm. schools will be closed again because we'll see a spike and we're trying to avoid that And, and the other big concern that we have is um special education and compensatory you know compensatory what do we have to do you know, under IDEA, because we haven't received any guidance from the federal government. Um, current Secretary of Education's message, special education community was, she was confident that special education teachers would do what they needed to do to make sure students were meeting all levels of ID, you know, IDEA, which is their civil right to, you know, have a certain level of education. And um, that's what she said, good luck sure you can do it. I'm not going to give you any extra money to do it. I'm not going to give you any support to do it. I'm not going to give you any guidance to do it. Just go do it. So it's really turning to the states then to kind of create that guidance for themselves. And I'm on a a really um, cool group of people that are the movers and shakers in education um, in the, um, you know, kind of the, like, there's labor people and um, special education advocates and former Lieutenant Governor Kelly, who has a child who's with autism. And um, it's called the Special Education Coalition. And we're working very hard to inf- help inform the system. So mm-hmm. um, working with the state superintendent and, and um, Department of Education to be it's kind of like a think tank to say, okay, what, what will compensatory education do and how can we do it so it doesn't break the bank, you know, in the state of Michigan. And so there's a lot of, a lot of creative thinking going on, which is cool to be a part of. And wasn't there just something passed that I read somewhere, uh, 5%, like there was like 30 million that was just passed to go into special education and it's just, it's not enough. Oh no, no, <laughs> it's no, just no, the no, tip, yeah. no, not even close. In Michigan, seven hundred and forty million dollars a year mm-hmm. is what isn't covered in special education. That burden is passed on to districts. Um, oh. So that means that the eight thousand dollars per pupil that schools get, which is also underfunded by about two thousand a year, um, those the first five hundred to a thousand dollars comes off the top and goes to cover the cost of special ed. Wow, so it's amazing. It's an, it's, yeah. a, it's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. 
Jen, do you want to ask a couple of questions? I'm sorry. I feel like I've been monopolizing the conversation. Oh, I have learned so much. Um, well, <clears throat> truly, Cheryl, we can see that you are very, very passionate about education and what you're doing. And we're just kind of curious, what was the turning point or the motivation in your life to, to become involved and, and seek the role of a representative? Well, um, I was always involved, like when I was a teacher, I was involved with MEA and I bargained a lot of contracts. As an administrator, I um, became involved in advocacy. So a couple times a year, I'd go take the visit up to Lansing and meet with my representatives and senators and talk about what was important. And you always kind of felt like, you know, I'd send the emails, I'd make the phone calls, and I always felt like my words were kind of landing on not deaf ears, but uninformed ears, I guess. So you could tell just by their facial expression, they couldn't relate to at all to what I was saying. So I went, when I started, even six years, you know, when I first started as a principal, my teachers had two preps a day. They had, it was a middle school. So we had team time and we had um, math support and reading support. And um, my kids, my students, I, the school I worked in had a lot of poverty. We had over 30 languages represented. We had a lot of issues. And so I could say to a child that came to my district, which was a great district, from maybe an urban area where they were under, they, you know, they were below grade level. That family could walk into my office and I'd say, here's the good news. We've got a system in our building that we will get your child reading at grade level before they get to high school. And we and I could say that with confidence. I could say that about math. I could say that about reading. And then year over year, I was losing hours of that support. And my teachers were now they had they only they had one prep, which is what most teachers get. I mean, we were in a really unique situation, and we hung on to that model for as long as we could. My teachers had one prep, which meant that they didn't have the relationships with the kids. I couldn't. I could, was now having conversations like, well, I know we've got a system to get your child to grade level, but I have a year's waiting list. So hopefully we'll be able to get them into a reading support class by the time they're in seventh grade. Um, and to me, that just felt really unethical. And it wasn't because my district wasn't supporting me. It was because my district had just cut and cut and cut, and there was nothing else they could cut. Mm -hmm. and, um, and at that point, I had to say, well, it's not my fault, it's not the district's fault. You know, I had met the capacity of what I could do from my office as an administrator, and I felt the next place I needed to expand my capacity to influence was legislatively. So I lobbied hard um, once I was elected to get onto the um, School Aid Appropriations Committee, which is my favorite committee, so I could see where every single dollar was spent and where every single dollar came from. And I already, you know, because of my, my PhD, I had a good knowledge of that to begin with, but I really wanted to see the actual numbers. Next year, if we flip the house, we only need to have, um, we only need to flip four seats from red to blue. Then um, the Democrats will be in the majority. And if the Dems are in the majority, um, I'm hopeful. I've been kind of winked at that um, I would be the appropriations chair for school aid. Good. And then I will really have a voice working with our governor who absolutely was on the right track with school funding before COVID hit. Um, 
then I'll be in exactly the right place to be working with our governor to make school sure that schools are fully and appropriately funded. It's a tough job. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's a tough job. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, we need to we need to rely. I mean, we need to be really pushing our federal folks too, because the other thing I've learned since I've been here is, you know, states have to balance our budget. And at least in Michigan, we have to. It's constitutionally we have to have a balanced budget. If we don't have the dollars, we can't spend or appropriate the dollars. Right. Clearly, that's not the case in Washington. And clearly, whatever they decide, they prioritize, they find the money. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't even want to think about where that's coming from. But right now, I don't care. Right now, I'm laser focused on making sure that we start prioritizing schools. Good. And so I'm working closely with our congressional delegation as, as well. And if we have um, some, um, a little flipping of the Senate, and maybe the presidency, um, I think that next term we could really see a lot more support for education coming from the federal level. Mm -hmm. And you know, even if we funded special education, that mm -hmm. would take care of our issues in Michigan. Like let's just fund special education so that Michigan dollars are going to everybody. Mm. Well, so you've been really surprised by anything, you seem to really have an insight working in the jobs that you worked in previously before moving into the, the representative role. But have any surprises you've seen legislatively or ideas that were exposed that you really weren't expecting? Um, I think it's the learning curve is just how policy gets shaped and passed and the political nature of it. Um, yeah. It's not like Schoolhouse Rock where you have a great idea and everybody says, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's pass that and give the Democrat a win in their column. Um, so I, I work really closely with um, my Republican colleagues and started a group called the Educators Caucus because there were a lot of educators that were elected this last term. So people talk about the blue wave and the pink wave. We had an educator's wave yeah. in Michigan as well. I saw that, yeah. And yeah. so um, we created Educators Caucus, which is bipartisan, bicameral, and um, I just have to be okay. And I am totally okay with being a part of the solution and not getting any of the credit. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm totally okay with that. I'm totally okay. Here, take this idea. Get your get make it your idea, Republicans. Get your leadership involved, and let's just get a bill passed. So I'm um, I'm okay with that because I know I'm in the minority, and I want to see things change. But um, I had to understand that if I wanted, like I have a substitute teacher bill right now that um, allows teachers to come back and sub without it affecting their pension, because right now it affects you can only sub short time, and then your pensions hit. Well, and then we have a sub shortage and the subs we're getting are of low quality because we're not letting teachers come back. And so I have a bill to solve that problem. I've worked with every stakeholder. I've worked with treasury, worked with the department of education. Everybody gave their thumbs up. This is something people have been working on for like seven years and it won't, and it got assigned um, to committee, but then it's up to that chairperson to actually bring it up for a hearing and she is less likely to do that 
because it's a democratic bill by itself. Mm -hmm. So I have a Republican colleague who's created a bill that really isn't necessary, but what it'll be, it'll be tie barred to my bill. Then it's a bipartisan bill, then their gets a win, and, um, and that's what you have to do to get it even called up to committee. So that's what I had to learn was the process of the politics of getting good legislation through. And that's the most frustrating part, but it is, I mean, that's a reality, you know, so. Well, we see it at the federal level too, so. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my microphone yeah. just fell out. Hold on a minute. <laughs> that's why I was struggling. <laughs> okay. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, that, that's got to be very, very frustrating. And so you have to kind of figure out how you're going to maneuver to get what you need. Yeah, it's, it, it's really a strategy. And it takes, you know, I've been working on this bill. It took me a good eight months just to get all the stakeholders on board. Wow. And so that's a series, you know, meetings, writing a draft, getting the stakeholders in a meeting, they give you feedback, you write another draft, they give you feedback, then somebody says, you know, even though they're all in education, they're, they don't always agree, teachers don't always agree with administrators, and, you know, um, the Office of Retirement Services is, you know, they're being counters, they don't care anything about anything except make sure that we're solvent. So, mm -hmm. um, getting everybody to say oh that's actually that'll work for everybody that took us about eight months to begin with and that and that's just where you start before you have to figure out all the political strategy after that so there's no i mean legislation is supposed to be difficult because we don't want to just be passing willy-nilly laws mm -hmm. you know and so mm -hmm. it's supposed to take a time and it's supposed to be slow but when you have pressing needs, um, it, it makes it difficult. We're kind of curious about, you know, what are you seeing next on, on the agenda, you know, as far as working through the COVID-19 and all that, but are there any, say, when we come through this and we figure out mm -hmm. what we're doing in the fall, are we online, are we hybrid? Some of the universities, even my son goes to university, and they're talking kind of a hybrid look right in the fall. but do do we have if we just had a crystal ball or something to kind of see what it may be the school year of 2021 you know the okay. beginning of that any premonitions or ideas on where you think the new normal is going to land well i think that um this will definitely this online learning will definitely have an impact on how teachers teach in yeah. the future. And um, I think it really got some teachers, you know, baptism by fire, but kind of got them over that technology hump. Um, I know I worked, I had some tech savvy teachers that were all about, you know, Google Classrooms and other, you know, really leveraging technology to enhance what was going on in the classroom. But um, it was hard to get everybody on board. And so you know, one of the things I used to ask my teachers to do all the time is like, just get a kid to, to hold up their phone and snap the video of you teaching your lesson. 
not the whole class, but just teaching the lesson and then link that to your web page at the end of the day. You only have to do it once. If you know if you're teaching the same class three times, you only have to record yourself teaching once, then the student can go home and review the lesson when they're working on their homework mm -hmm. without bugging you. Because what a lot of times, you know, kids come in the next day and they're like, I forgot how to do this by the time they get home. And so I'm I'm thinking that this is actually going to benefit um, how we teach and um, kind of getting teachers who were reluctant to to include technology as part of their support for students. I think this is really going to get a, get us to a new place. Um, mm -hmm. In Michigan, we have snow days. You know, we some districts up in northern Michigan lose two weeks of school because of snow days. Right. I think we've lost snow days. Snow days are like, okay, yeah, you're fun. just going to have a distance learning day instead right. of a snow day. Right. So um, I, it'll be really interesting to see how, how lesson planning changes, how mm -hmm. um, learning changes, and how technology, um, it's more technology rich when we get back. Um, also, um, because I'm so focused on special education right now, because that's just going to be a dumpster fire if we aren't on top of it. Um, mm -hmm. How we can, at compensatory services, we can't like just rely on teachers who are already teaching their eight-hour day to then do support on the weekends, right? Mm -hmm. So that means we're going to have to have a lot more private partnerships with education with public education in the realm of special education so social work health physical therapy occupational therapy we've usually those folks have been exclusively hired by the district and used in the district i think is because we have to make up for lost time we're going to develop a lot more partnerships and i think that's going to be good as well mm -hmm. um to because in the past um we've um kind of said, well, what parents, whatever you do outside of school is in its own silo. And we haven't included that. I mean, I, I tried to when I was administrator, but a lot of schools don't include, don't invite those private folks, the doctors, technicians into the IEPs, for example, to inform mm -hmm. during the IEP. And I think that that's something that um, we're going to have to rely on those folks and then hopefully integrate them into the school plan because right now they've been very separate. So I think that will be um, a benefit to to folks. Um, but I think, and then the other thing, the place where we were heading in Michigan, and it's at the federal level, there's this wonderful program called C4S, Caring for Kids, Caring for Students, where any Medicaid eligible service that the school provided um, would be covered regardless if the students on Medicaid or in a, and not just special education. Currently, special education students on Medicaid, those funds are reimbursed by the federal government. The C4S program is all Medicaid eligible services. That opens up the door to have family clinics in the school, to have um, licensed professional counselors in the school, social workers in the school, and those costs are covered by the federal government rather than coming out of the K-12 budget, So, which is appropriate. They're medical services. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what was the direction we were working on when COVID hit, was how can we integrate 
our mental health and physical health system within the school. And again, make it part of the school plan, the whole child, healthy child plan. Um, and those services if the child's in the school also extend to the family. Mm-hmm. So think about how we can transform, especially Michigan, which has a tremendous amount of poverty, how we could transform the health, mental health and physical health of families just by putting that hub of, of health in, into schools and making it part of the school mm-hmm. for the whole child and the whole family. So that was um, a really exciting uh, journey we were, we, and we still are on, it's just slowed down, you know, because everything is COVID focused right now. Thank you for taking the time this morning and to talk Absolutely. with us. Uh, yeah. We just loved having you. Well, thank you so much. And again, it was just really nice meeting you, Jenny. I heard all about you. And so good seeing you, Maureen. Good seeing you too. Good seeing you too, Cheryl. And keep keep you, I'll keep you updated as things move forward. Thank you. Definitely. Okay. Thank you. And I'm going to go get my, since we're at different time zones, I'm going to go get my real cup of coffee right now (laughs) because I really do need one. I was I, I was just like, please let me be alert, please. <laughs> did very that coffee, well, that coffee did really helped. Well. What'd you say, Jen? What? I said you did really well. We couldn't tell you'd only had one cup. <laughs> very much. Well, listen, you guys enjoy and go Michigan State. I'm just saying that. Sorry, you have Go green, go green, go white. Right? Go green, go yeah. white. Yay, go Sparty. Yeah. Okay. I, I teach at U of M, but my but my um my dollars went to Michigan State. My, <laughs> my, my, my of course, right. Graduated, right. Tuition dollars went to Michigan. State. <laughs> Good. Yay. Yeah. So so did a lot of mine, but we're not talking about that. Okay. We'll see you guys later. Right. Bye. 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 Thank you.